Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of In the Barn. I'm Robin. And I'm Kelsey. And in today's episode, we are going to be starting part one of our supplement series. Our goal is to answer the question, are supplements worth the money? But in order to do this, we have to start at the beginning with a look at the industry itself and how it got so big. Okay, so before we dive into the topic of supplements and I share all the wonderful research I have, I wanted to get like, what is your, to start off this series, what is your supplement opinion? Are you a fan and not a fan? I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but I'm curious, has it changed at all? Uh, no, I've actually, so I've never been one to use supplements very much because like, I, I don't know, I've never really seen a gap where I needed to fill with supplements and I just, I've never been one that's prescribed to, I don't, I've just like, I've never used supplements. I don't think we grew up using very many supplements either. So I kind of took my mentality from there, but I just I've never, never really been a supplement person. Not even with myself in my personal life. Like never been a pre-workout person, never been, even the gummy vitamins that they prescribe to you. The only reason I've eaten those because they're just delicious and I like gummies, but I, I ended up eating way too many and ended up having to look up, you know, can you overdose on vitamins? And it turns out you can. So that was a little bit scary for the next 15 minutes. Yeah, so you know, it's going to take more than 15 minutes, but you know, <laughs> you're going to want to watch yourself for more than just 15 minutes. That's good. Okay, so you're the opposite of me. Well, kind of. I'm like closer to you than I think maybe supplement companies realize because I do buy and use supplements. Two of my horses are on supplements right now. What a third one just kind of came off a supplement pack that they were on for 30 days. So we do use supplements in this household. Do I believe in them? No. <laughs> do I think they work? No. But I have a whole cabinet full of human supplements and pre-workout and protein powders and so do my horses. I've tried almost every supplement under the sun, like different brands, different companies, different things. I don't think any of them work, but the marketing's effective and I can't help myself sometimes. Like it's just like no one buys supplements because they don't want to do the right thing for their horse. We purchase supplements because we believe we're doing the right thing for our horse and we want them to be happy, healthy creatures. What marketing got you? So for me, gut health has been like a big issue or something I have identified in my house or in my barn as being an issue. My horses have experienced experienced intermittent diarrhea. They do a lot of dirt eating, or I have like one horse that's a big dirt eater, and then a lot of wood chewing and different things that aren't out of boredom. They're out of trying to find and supplement their diets with something that's missing. So that's one of the areas where I've really struggled because I, I know I can do it through a supplement, right? I, there's supplements for gut health. Like that's a total thing. And then I also know like I think there's also some hay ways I could do this. So my horses were on Teff for a really long time, and then they kind of like lost interest in Teff hay. So now we're on Timothy. I've run out of Timothy. I, there's no Timothy at the feed store. I went yesterday to buy Timothy. They didn't have Timothy. So like um, we're kind of like that. It's hard because now I'm seeing like those gut issues again. But I know if I just give them the proper hay, it's not an issue. But if I run out of the hay, should I just have a supplement handy? Should I just have to make sure that my horses are still functioning. So it's it's that kind of balance of like, I know there's an issue. You say you fix this issue. You're easier to feed sometimes than Timothy when the feed store runs out of Timothy. Yeah, I guess that actually, that makes sense. It's probably where a lot of people start using these is I'm guessing it's either gut health or joints. I feel like joints is another big proponent. Yeah, and joint health is definitely the first place I started with supplements was Older, retired, I got two horses with arthritis, both retired, two different ages. They're both on a joint supplement, but their joint supplement is it's masquerading. <laughs> like it's a pretend joint supplement kind of. It's more pain management. And that's because my horses are in pain and they don't need to be on butte. Are we ready to move to, you know, a prescription and other prescription medicine? Maybe, but it's really to help with that like uh, pain management, not so much growing new cartilage or you know fixing fixing their joint because that is definitely something that's does that exist we'll get into but to start out the episode what I want to start with is introducing Dr. Davis Marlin real quick um and a article that he wrote and posted on his website because this is kind of where we're starting this supplement perspective from is understanding that you know, there's very little research. There is some research and more and more research is being done every day into the effectiveness of supplements, but it hasn't been there for the longest time. And there's this huge market that is selling you 
one of everything. Like you could supplement, like name a problem, there's a supplement for it. It is this huge market that is somewhat regulated, kind of, not really. We'll get into it for sure in just a second about how the regulations of the supplement industry work. I don't I don't even know how to explain it. It's just like this big mystery that we've all bought into. <laughs> like, and we all believe these products work because someone somewhere at the barn, our riding instructor, our friends, our cousins, uncles, aunts, brothers, dog takes this supplement. And so we think it's going to work for our horse. And from there, the supplement industry has grown. It doesn't hurt that literally every organization out there encourages the use of supplements. I mean, AQHA offers discount codes for their members that purchase Smart Pack supplements. It's like 5 to 10%. USEA is sponsored by SmartPak. We're like, yes, SmartPak is known for other things more than just the supplements, but I would say they're most widely known for their mark on the supplement industry. And USEF just announced a sponsorship with, uh, or like a partnership with Platinum Performance as their official sport nutrition supplement company. So like, it doesn't hurt that all these organizations that we go through are also pushing supplements down your throat and are like, hey, look, it all works for your horse. And when you go to a competition, some of the prizes are supplements or like are a sample of these different supplements. Yeah, I mean, it has infiltrated pretty much every aspect of our horse's lives. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a recreational rider or a top performance rider, you're probably feeding the same amount of supplements. And I think a lot of us look at top riders and Smart Pack is super guilty of this for sending out magazines and saying, this is what Boyd Martin feeds his horse. If you want to be Boyd Martin and you want Boyd Martin and horse. Here's what you should feed. And they do that for tons of athletes and tons of top riders is here's what they feed. If you want to be just like them, you can feed the same strip. Here's how you do it. There is a big belief that if you want to make it at the top, then you need to do what the top is doing. You need to use the same equipment. You need to use the same riding practices. You need to use the same feeding and supplement practices. And the truth is none of that's true. <laughs> like none of that is, is true. You don't have to do what they're doing. You have to do what works for you and your horse and it could look very different. All right, let's talk about Dr. Davis Marlin. I just want to introduce him really quickly because before I read his rant, I want you to understand that this is like an actual educated, very involved in the industry person and not just like a rando with a blog. Okay. He is a doctor with a PH, like a PhD and not a DVM kind of doctor. Uh, he got his degree from low. Oh, I hate words so much. <laughs> uh, basically a leading university in the UK. He was studying racehorses the training impacts on racehorses is what he got his degree in. And he's done a lot of looking at treadmill usage and running horses on treadmills and developing testing protocols for using treadmills in, oh. in experiments. So that's kind of cool. So he is from the UK. Um, his main interest of like professional area is exercise, psychology, nutrition, fitness, training, performance, thermal regulation. He does a lot of consulting with the Olympics, World Equestrian Games, uh, some of these really big worldwide horse shows, setting up thermal regulation plans. Like if you're taking your horses to Beijing, how do you handle that? That's a very hot, very humid climate that a lot of these horses aren't used to. So what is the best strategy for bringing these horses into these different countries to compete? So he's done a lot of consulting for the Olympics. Oh, that's so freaking cool that he's the guy that you should talk to about how like measuring stride length and stuff on the treadmills is actually working. I mean, we like haven't sat down for a cup of coffee. This is just his blog post that I'm reading. <laughs> but again, I think he'd be really Yeah, mad. but he sounds so cool. No, he is really cool. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like he does a lot of competition strategy, transport, respiratory disease, and he has consulted with numerous organizations, including the Olympic committees for the last several Olympic games in order to ensure equine welfare. So what my point is, he's been around for a long time and he's not just like some Yahoo with a blog. Not just another keyboard warrior. Exactly. So he wrote this post back in 2015. And while a lot of the stuff I'm going to be referencing is a little bit older from like, I feel like 2000. 2016 at this point was so long ago in 2015 I know it was like five or six years ago but nothing really has changed so it's, even though I'm not like reciting 2021 uh documents not much has changed because a lot of these regulations were put in place back in the early 90s. So one other thing I want to point out with this is that he's going to be talking about the UK in this post, but the rules in the UK are pretty much the exact same in the United States. We just have different permitted ingredients. A lot of our ingredients are the same, and a lot of them, there's just a little bit difference between what ingredients are allowed in some instances of, for feeds, but the structure is very similar. So this is his words. First of all, in case you don't know, I do actually work in the equine supplement industry. Yes, I make my living partly from this industry. Yes. 
yes, I need to sell supplements to generate income. However, I spent 25 years in research, a large part of it involved with equine nutrition, and 12 years learning the skills necessary to formulate, develop, manufacture, and trial equine supplements. Not a day goes by now where I don't see adverts or websites or social media posts which blatantly flaunt UK and EU law and which should be acted upon by the Veterinarian Medicines Directorate, the Advertising Standards Agency, or Trading Standards. In many cases, this is simply a case of claims which are not permitted. Uh, for example, med medicinal or functional claims such as prevents laminitis, boosts immunity, improves recovery. That whole statement is ex true in the United States as well. So that's why I'm reading this. Like That is basically exactly how the United States works, just different agencies. Other supplements use ingredients which are not permitted to be used under EU regulations. For example, chromium and glutamine because they are prohibited or not included in the EU register of feed additives. Many companies' labels do not provide the information required under EU regulations. Many companies also imply that they are part of schemes such as beta nopes, which reduces the risk of positive tests for commonly occurring, but not all prohibited substances, essentially for horses competing affiliated FEI. Finally, I see many marketing claims that are not supported by any data when the format of the claim requires them to provide references to supporting data. And I won't even start on inclusion of ingredients known to be potentially harmful, such as high level iron supplements or ineffective, such as creatine and L-ascorbic acid. Finally, whilst there is no evidence that supplements on sale in the UK don't meet the specifications for ingredients on their labels, an independent survey of equine joint supplements in the USA showed that many had lower amounts of active ingredients such as glucosamine in them than was claimed on the label. In a few cases, the supplements contained no active ingredients at all. Horse owners are not all scientists. I can spot poor products and misleading adverts easily. However, I am if I'm buying a coffee maker, then I would probably have no clue who makes the best one unless I find someone who works in the industry or a good independent review. It's a highly technical field and there is no reliable independent body that will review what's on offer, maybe which would like to take it on. That's the only difference in the United States. We do have an independent body, which we'll talk about in this episode, but it's all voluntary. It's not required. The reason I wanted to share that was because <laughs> that's kind of where this episode is starting from, is that we know we have a lot of labeling issues in the United States with our supplements. We know there's a lot of loopholes with our regulations and how supplements get on the market. But the problem is the general public doesn't know that. I know that because I've spent a week <laughs> researching it and I've had snippets of people share this information with me over the last like year. And this was made evident in with somebody's thesis. I found another thesis for today that is called Supplement Use and Perceptions, a survey of horse US horse owners. So this was Nicole K. Swirlsey's thesis. People doing theses love to do surveys. And my theory they love to do surveys is because it's probably the only way to get enough participants that they can run their statistical equations. And it's affordable. Surveys are relatively cheap to do. Yeah, absolutely. Super affordable, especially if you've got no funding to do a thesis whatsoever. Like <laughs> I don't think I don't think these kids get funding in any way to do these theses. So so her thesis, basically what she did was she surveyed uh, 2,000 people. So she got 2,000 responses over a 30-day period that responded to a series of questions. I think this survey was like 90 questions long or 40 questions long. It was a long, it was a long survey, but it was really interesting. And so I want to just stop and go over the education levels because this was a question she asked. And I thought this was really interesting and a really good point. But the level of education among survey respondents was pretty spread across the levels. 1% of respondents did not have a high school diploma. And I think that's because there were some people who were surveyed who are 18, but maybe you could be 18 and not have graduated high school yet. Or maybe they just didn't graduate high school. I don't know. 7% had a high school diploma. 27% had some college. And 65% had at least one college degree. Oh, wow. And of those respondents, 75% had owned horses for more than 10 years. The point of me stopping here and to point out horse ownership, length of time, and education, is these are not stupid people or inexperienced people. These are not, you know, kids who got their first pony who are being surveyed and providing a lot of this information. It doesn't matter who you are, even the average horse person out there that is educated and knows about their horse and his own horses for a long time and is very aware of what goes into having a horse, taking care of them, keeping the proper nutrition. They still fall victim to the supplement industry ads. They still fall victim to the market and how it's pushing that you need these supplements to keep your horse healthy and happy, that you need these supplements to keep riding your horse, just to keep them going. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are experienced who believe they're doing the best for their horse, 
are missing a huge part of the puzzle. So of the respondents, 84% reported giving their horses at least one supplement and 58% reported they spent at least $30 uh, a month or more on supplements. So across all disciplines, 21% of people believed their horse had a behavior issue. 57% believed they had a joint issue. 43% believed they had hoof issues. 18% believed they had skin or coat issues. 9% believed they had a colic issue. 20% believed they had digestive issues other than colic. And 15% believed performance or energy issues. And then 12% believed their horses lacked diets. All of those people then chose to supplement. If they perceived their horse to have an issue, then there was a positive correlation with them providing the supplements. The point being is that you have to first believe your horse has an issue. Like I started this conversation, I believe my horses have a GI issue, and then I'm gonna buy a supplement. The point being people aren't just randomly feeding supplements, there is like a cause and effect. I believe I have an issue, I've been told I have an issue, and now I'm gonna try to fix it with a supplement. Okay, and that actually kind of explains my mentality then as to why I don't really use supplements or don't. Because like a lot of the issues that I've come across or thought that my horses had, whether it was like a digestive tract problem or a joint problem or something of that nature, I've always looked at other solutions. So like joints and stuff, I've looked at ways to strengthen the horse's body, not like not a supplemental solution. Right. And I think it's, you know, interesting to point out is that a lot of these issues we perceive aren't diet related because a supplement at the end of the day is diet related, right? Like a supplement is something that's, yeah, they're eating. And a lot of these things may not be diet related or you know if they are diet related there's a good chance they're from an improper diet if your horse has colic issues that's typically you know why does a horse colic okay are they not getting enough fiber are you know we're going through weather changes and your horse is eating too much grass in the spring and they now can't digest it properly uh, because they don't have enough fiber in their in their stomach they have too many carbs and not enough fiber so because they didn't get enough hay that day so now you have colic issues in the spring well that's not a colic issue that's a feed issue. I'll take it back actually. I have used a supplement once. When I lived in Arizona with Trin, they always were eating off the ground and the whole uh, pasture obviously was just dirt and sand. For sand colic? Is that what you're like a... Yeah, I used something for to help prevent sand colic and break up the sand in their digestive tract and make sure that they didn't get, she didn't colic from sand. But you had no evidence that sand was an issue. Mm-hmm. I Actually, I think that could be art. I feel like there is stuff out there that sand colic is a problem in those types no, no, of no, climates. No, 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 not what I said, not, not what I said at all. Oh. Absolutely, sand causes colic. You had no evidence sand was an issue for your horse. That's what I was saying. Like, you, not that sand, like, not that sand wasn't collecting, you just had no proof. And I think that's what a lot of these supplements rely on is you have no proof of a problem, but doing something is better than doing nothing. Yeah, I was using it as a preventative measure. Right, and that, that was my only point, was that, like, I think a lot of people use supplements preventatively as well in order to avoid issues. You know, and this study is saying that that might not be the case, right? This study just said that those who believed they had an issue weren't necessarily using it preventatively. They believed they had a current issue, then chose to use a supplement. I see what you're saying. So, but I think it goes both ways. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to get you off track there. No, 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 you're fine. So, okay, across all disciplines, 31% of owners reported that they would likely use supplements to treat or prevent behavior issues. Okay, so I take that all back. <laughs> I take everything <laughs> back that I just said. So, so this absolutely then does confirm that if you perceive you have an issue, you're 100% likely to use a supplement. But many, many people are choosing to prevent issues and are getting ahead of the game. So 90%, for example, were willing to treat joint issues or prevent joint issues with a supplement. This is also really interesting. So respondents were asked who did they rely on in order to get their supplement information. 43% identified veterinarians were their first choice for supplement information. Interesting enough, Naomi Oliver was a student at the same school in 2019, and she did her master's, but hers was perceptions of veterinarians on the use of nutritional supplements in the horse industry. So instead of surveying the general public, she surveyed vets, 5% of vets said they were consulted by their clients. Huh. So basically she pointed out that they had a lied. The first one said 43% and then when asked, when vets were asked, they said, no, nobody talks to us. But they said they would like to be consulted. They would like to be consulted. <laughs> so for Adeline, when we first started her on supplements, so my vet did recommend a bunch of supplements. She gave me a list of like, these are the categories. Here's some of the top brands to look at. And then she said, once you pick them, I'm going to look at the labels and I'll tell you if you did good or not. So I did do that with my vet. I don't use any of those supplements now. And that's really like not because of my vet. It's because I was like getting sick and tired of supplement 
of Smart Pack changing their like supplements on me. They were changing the recipes and changing like what I was actually feeding my horse all the time without me. So I started on like a vitamin E and selenium supplement. And by the time I canceled, it was like a full spectrum vitamin pack. Like they had just changed constantly what I was feeding my horse. And I was like sick and tired of that. So sorry, Smart Pack. That's really annoying. You, you can't do that to people. And if you, I know sometimes they do it and they notified me via email, but like not all the time. Well, and it's not like you can go back to what you were previously feeding, right? Like they changed the recipe. Yeah. So I think the vitamin one, they changed the recipe. Um, and so, yeah, it was no longer just like a vitamin E selenium supplement. Uh, so I, I took my horse off of that and my horses are now, all my horses eat a ration balancer, which is just like a vitamins, but in grain format. Because my horses are all fairly easy keepers, except for Dublin, but he still eats a ration balancer so that I don't have to give him a hoof supplement and this and that. And like everyone at the point, my horses were on one of everything. You name it, my horses were on it. So like every category. <laughs> that was a lot. And I was spending, honestly, over $300 a month to supplement to Holy crap. Yeah, because if you're going to do it, why would you buy the cheap stuff? That's a lot of supplements. I mean, I, I understand what you're talking about. If you're going to do it, why would you buy the cheap stuff? Jeez. Over th- for two horses. Because my other two, Hudson and Nim, are both Mustangs and Meta Mustang in captivity, they need like nothing. They get fat looking at food, it's like just staring at it because <laughs> their bodies are designed to survive on nothing. <laughs> so any good quality food and they are little blimps, little sausages. So the last sort of piece of that original thesis was that 50% believe supplements were safe to feed and the other half believe supplements were not safe to feed. So even split, 84% were feeding supplements, but only 50% believed they were safe to feed. Well, that's sketchy. And sort of similarly, just under, I think it's 47% believed supplements were well-researched. And just over like 53% believed supplements were not well-researched. But again, 84% fed. Huh. Okay, so one last survey that I'm going to go through real quick is the 2009 survey of feeding practices, supplement use, and knowledge of equine nutrition among a subpopulation of horse owners in New England. So this study was uh, conducted with 64 folks who had brought their horse in to the veterinarian hospital at Tufts University. So they brought their horses in for a separate procedure, not like related to nutrition. And while they were there, they were asked to fill out this survey, like to participate. All owners reported that they fed their horses hay and a majority feeding grass hay or Timothy. Most horse owners, 96%, reported feeding grain in addition to that hay. Approximately 84%, again, same number, of the owners reported including at least one supplement in the horse's feedings. The supplements that were most commonly used was chondroprotectives, I think that's a joint supplement, electrolytes, and multivitamins. Survey questions designed to assess the owner's knowledge of nutrition suggested that many owners may not have a basic understanding of principles of equine nutrition. Less than 50% knew the daily water and hay requirements for a horse, and 69% lacked knowledge about the proper use of concentrates, grain, in a diet. This is key and what the supplement industry has capitalized on. That us as horse owners do not understand nutrition. It is complicated. Go ahead, raise your hand if you know how to read a feed label and how to break that out per serving and understand, you know, your serving, not the recommended serving. None of us feed the required servings on those grain bags. You're supposed to feed like six to 12 pounds of grain to your horse a day. That's why mine switched to ration balancers because you only have to feed a pound a day versus the 12 pounds. Most of us aren't feeding our horses correctly. So of course we want to buy a supplement because I don't want to feed my horses 12 pounds of grain in order to get the required vitamins. But the issue is a lot of times those supplements are in such small dosages anyways that you're not really doing much of anything that makes me wonder about the smart pack wells um are are those enough for the the horses to actually be getting a benefit of that supplement dose i know they're all like pre-packaged out to this is the dose you feed your horse but is it actually enough you know i haven't done the math but that is a concern right if you think about how little you're feeding the horse big horse little tiny supplement even if it's packed full of stuff, is that enough? That is a question that's out there. Um, I did not break that down mathematically today, but that is definitely something if you're looking at the supplement, is this actually going to be enough? And is that little pellet enough? We know that if you have to feed 12 pounds of grain or six to 12 pounds of grain to get all those nutrients, how is the supplement pulling that off? When we're talking about feeding horses properly, like your horse should be able to pull all the nutrients required to have healthy joints 
from their feed. And I think a lot of us want to feed low quality grain. We want to save a few bucks on grain. We want to save a few bucks on hay because I'm with you. Hay is expensive. Like right now, if I go to the feed store, it's about $20 a bale. Maybe a little bit more depending on what I'm buying and how much it weighs. But for a 90-pound bale of alfalfa, $20. That's a lot of money. If I can save myself some protein, right, because I'm feeding alfalfa for protein, um, especially when it's cold and my horses like it, and that's $20, right? Like that, that could be a bag of grain, and a bag of grain is 50 pounds, and that could last, you know, a couple weeks versus three horses, one bale. You know what I'm saying? Like I get it. It adds up, but are you really saving money by purchasing supplements? If I'm spending $300 a month on supplements, am I saving money? No, I'm probably not. And I, I've, so my grain I feed now is $40 a bag. So it definitely hurts when I have to go to the feed store and buy two bags because everybody eats it. But again, I don't have to feed supplements now. And I've done, I did the math on that one. I did do the math when I switched grains and it was like, yeah, I'm going to save money, a lot of money. I'm going to save, I end up saving like $130 a month by switching to a $40 ba- feed bag versus the like $25 feed bag and all the supplements. Huh. I mean, and, and that's actually cool that your uh, feed store has those options and stuff because I know a few feed stores around me, but most of them are like tractor supply and stuff and they don't supply very many options. no or like that offer a lot of variety and stuff. And so the only feed store that actually offers probably variety is like 40 minutes away from me. And so I rare, whenever I drive up there, I go there for hay. I don't go there to get my grain. I go to tractor supply to get my grain. So word on the street is don't feed do more, but I don't, I haven't looked into them specifically, but I've seen. I don't feed them. Okay. Well, so my tractor supply like now just exclusively carries Dumore. Oh, really? Yeah. They do like, they carry alfalfa pellets and like that kind of stuff. But like grain wise, I was really annoyed when I went in the other day because I thought I was going to grab a couple things because tractor supply is open later than my feed store is. Uh, so if I like trying to get something after work, I'll go into tractor supply to try to pick it up. And yeah, I was kind of mad right but i think this also helps the supplement industry out right because most of us don't have access especially in like different communities and stuff where you don't have the high-end feed stores or i don't know like it's a smaller location that you go to get your hay and your feed that you cannot get these more expensive or like there is no ration balancer at the feed stores near me i cannot get it i don't have that option available to me and so many others probably don't and that's why they turn to supplements and that's where like the supplement industry hooks them they gotcha. Yeah, and I yeah, I absolutely don't disagree because I feed LMF, and I know LMF is not available in all states. I know it's like a West Coast uh, down to, I think, like Texas. I think they have a Texas kind of West is LMF. And so I'm lucky enough I get to feed LMF. It's a good quality feed. And LMF does something really unique where they make stuff that's region specific. So one of the things I was researching for this episode and was I typed in lawsuits, you know, supplement lawsuits, feed lawsuits. And I found so many lawsuits that pertained to uh, these custom grain manufacturers. So you would call up the grain manufacturer in the state and you would be like, hey, this is, I live in your region. I want a grain that does X, Y, Z for my horse. And, you know, you know, let's make a custom grain for my horse. Every single one was like a lawsuit against one of these companies because they had they were doing multiple animals. And there is a huge issue with that as the cross contamination. I think it's like something that's in sheep and goat feed or whatever is like fatal to horses. And so horses were dying eating these custom feeds. And so now those places no longer offer that option. I think that might be a you know a good solution. Not that the cross contamination and your horses <laughs> dying is a good solution, but this ability to say this is what I need from a grain I need this type of ingredients available to me and I live in your region so how can we supplement this grain to compensate for whatever's missing in this region so I know that that is something a lot of barns have used in the past but now I've noticed a lot of those options are going away because unfortunately you just don't make enough money off of equine so they all I think I looked at three or four different companies that had a lawsuit against them since that lawsuit was filed they all pulled their equine line and only do other livestock now But, you know, if you're trying to tap into a billion dollar industry, the supplement companies have that cornered. And I I think there's more trust and more faith in the supplement industry, which I'm about to get into the regulation of the supplement industry. That'll be I'm going to wrap up my part with how the supplement industry is regulated. But I think we trust the supplements. We trust those companies. We trust that if you're in a white bucket and you've got a shiny label, that you're good to go. And the problem with the supplement industry is that 
it's fairly unregulated. There is regulations, like there are, is things, rules in place and procedures in place, but they're not quite what you think they are. So most of this information um, I'm pulling now comes from a 2017 paper titled Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Equine Supplements. It is by Bill Bookout, who is the founder and president, uh, or I guess he's on the board of directors of the National Animal Supplement Council. So while this paper, like while the National Animal Supplement Council does have a vested interest in seeing supplements grow and flourish, this paper was fairly honest and just like a good history of how we came to be. We're going to talk about 1994 real quick. <laughs> and in 1994 is basically the last time the rules were updated, but not actually updated because it didn't it turn out to apply in 94. When So in 1994, the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act was passed and became law. So Congress debated it they and it made it law. When that law was passed, and this just regulates human supplements. So your protein powders, your pre-workouts, your vitamins, all of that is now its own category under the Food and Drug Administration. So prior, as you can kind of tell from their name, they regulate food and drug and, and cosmetics. They also regulate cosmetics. But <laughs> food and drug is like their main, you know, bread and meat and potatoes, and cosmetics were later added, and so in 1994 were supplements. Because in 1994, there was like no animal supplements on the market, that was a really small slice of the market, very few products available, Congress never considered animals as part of this bill, like animal supplements or companion animals, which would be cats, dogs, and horses. I think horses do fall into companion animals sometimes. I'm not really sure. Those were not considered underneath this act. So when this act was passed for human supplements, a bunch of regulations from what can be put on labels to what ingredients can be used, what kind of claims they can make, all of that was put into regulation in 1994. However, in 1996, the FDA and the CVM, the Center for Veterinary Medicine, basically came out and said, this does not apply to animals. For animals, you have the definition of food, which means articles used for food or drink for man or other animals, and articles used for components of such article. There is no requirement that animal foods have pre-market approval by FDA and the CVM. The act does require that animal foods like human foods be pure, wholesome, contain no harmful or deleterious, I don't know, bad substances, and be truthfully labeled. The other category is drug. So a drug is an article intended for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of a disease, or an article intended to affect the structure or function of the body other than a food. So when we talk about supplements for horses, we are talking, it's gray. They either have to fit into the food category, and we know that supplements aren't food, that's not a replacement for a meal, or the drug. And if they fall into the drug category, which nobody wants to do because there's so many regulations involved with getting a drug test, not only the drug has to work. If you're going to claim you're a drug, you have to prove you actually do that thing. Nobody wants to do that because no one wants to prove that their supplement does or doesn't. All of these supplements come with a, a maybe, like a, like a nice shruggy emoji. Like that's on your, I feel like every supplement box just have like the shruggy emoji. Like could do it, could help your joints. I don't know. But so we have this like gray area and how supplements really get viewed is that they can use things that are approved on the approved feed additive list or things that are assumed to be okay to eat. Not approved, but like the general consensus is sure you can eat that and be fine. So there are a couple layers to how this regulation works with the FDA partnering with state regulations. So your regulations are going to be different from state to state because the federal government sets a base layer and then each state also gets to choose how their regulations specifically for manufacturing and labels work. However, there has been some efforts to sort of make labels consistent so you and I can understand it regardless if it was made in Texas or made in California or Maine, that those labels have some consistency to them. So the CV CVM is responsible for re regulating animal drugs, medicated feed, and feed additives. So the FDA does not oversee or approve the feeds themselves as long as the feeds use approved ingredients. And CVM is the Center for Veterinary Medicine, and they're an agency of the FDA. So the FDA is the parent organization, and then Center for Veterinary Medicine is underneath them. And they're basically just looking at like animal drugs is mostly what they're looking at. When I looked at their website, it didn't mention supplements pretty much anywhere. They said that their role was to like approve vaccines and 
and not approve vaccines. Like that's kind of where they fall. There are a couple additional organizations that oversee, not even oversee, but try to help, try to assist. One of those is the Association of American Feed Control Officials. So Puerto Rico, Canada, uh, Costa Rica, and each state has officials from those states that are part of this board. And this agency basically writes example legislation that then states can adopt. So their goal is to try to have something that looks the same in every state. But again, each state can have different regulations. You don't have to use their regulations as they are not government agency. It's all voluntary. And you know, depending on when you get funding, depending on where your legislative cycle is, Texas could be years behind California's labeling. So California could, in manufacturing practices, could be much different than Texas is because Texas, it's not a priority. Their legislative cycle is several years out on this issue. Like there's gonna be a hundred reasons why things would look very different than in California versus Texas. And I'm just picking on California and Texas. I have no idea like how their regulations compare. They're just like two example states. One of the early goals of the Association of American Feed Control Officials was to develop a solution for this growing industry. Because up until 2007, and I don't know how long after, but like 2001 through 2007, 2008, there was a huge fear that at any moment supplements could be pulled off the shelf and we couldn't buy them anymore. This is because supplements were not approved. They were in this gray area. They were basically considered illegal, but nobody knew how to regulate them. So they just left them on the shelves. There was an Equus article that I read not that long ago, but it was printed in 2008. And there was this big fear in the horse community that at any moment our supplements could be pulled because they were using unapproved ingredients. They were being used for non-nutritional reasons. So they established several committees. And unfortunately, these committees were never able to like agree upon what the issue was or how to address it. So then they tried again to make another committee with the goal of trying to identify subpar products. So their goal after they couldn't figure out what the problem was, then they decided, okay, we're just going to focus on getting bad products identified and getting those removed. And so in response to that, out of fear, several companies decided to get together and form the National Animal Supplement Council. So the National Animal Supplement Council was formed in 2001, and their goal was to be members, so manufacturers and producers who wanted to self-regulate themselves and hold themselves to higher standards because they didn't want their products to start getting pulled. And while AAFCO, the American uh, feed control officials, didn't have the authority to pull it they were made up of people who did have the authority to pull it so like as an organization they couldn't do it but as individuals they could because they were federal they were fda members at like the state and federal level so when substances including ones considered food is intended to be used for treatment or prevention of disease or for non-food structure the fda considers it a drug so if it is intended to be used in the treatment or prevention of a disease other than non-food, that means if it's if you have a nutrition defense deficiency of vitamin E, you can make a supplement that addresses that nutrient deficiency of vitamin E. That's considered food. But if you make a vitamin E supplement that helps muscle recovery after a workout, then that is considered a drug. Which is like this really weird, um, it's a really weird line to walk. If you have a product that's claiming to help with an issue other than a nutrient deficiency, it's a drug and has to be proven to work. Go into a feed store and you will see a hundred buckets that claim to help something and are labeled supplements and are not regulated as a drug. So while the FDA is strict with its regulations of drugs and certain foods, it will generally not investigate the safety or efficacy of supplements for people, pets, or horses, unless evidence is brought forward that suggests the supplement may not be safe for use as it is currently being marketed. The FDA does regulate dietary supplement labels and other labeling, such as packaging inserts, and the Federal Trade Commission regulates supplement marketing. It is the duty of the supplement manufacturer to make sure their claims and information on the product label are correct. However, this may not happen regularly within the equine supplement industry. I'm going to just briefly finish with who the National Animal Supplement Council is, and then I'll hand it over to you, because I know I've been talking for a long time, and I'm really, really sorry. (laughs) Okay, so the National Animal Supplement Council, and I just want to mention who they are again really quick, because they are like a mini regulatory agency. So what they have done is set up a bunch of standards that you as a manufacturing company can can follow. So their standards are very similar to what would have been approved under the 1994 Act, so basically a lot of what the human standards are. So they are volunteer, volunteer, Hair, re, volunteer, voluntarily, 
I don't know, volunteer organization. You can volunteer to follow their rules, but you do not have to. So while it sounds all really good what they have done, not many companies actually are participants. Well, if anyone is like buying supplements or has a supplement that they're using, you can easily go to nasc.cc slash members and you can do the little search bar and look up if the company that is selling the supplement that you're using is a member of this program. For instance, if you go and look up SmartPak, SmartPak is a member and they are allowed to use the NASC quality seal on their products and use that to show that they abide by their regulations. But like, for example, Cosaquine or Cosaquine, yeah. which is a very popular one that I've heard a lot about, they are not a part of this organization. They are not a member and they are not, they cannot use the NASC seal of approval on their products but they still have plenty of supplements out there on the market that a lot of people buy and use so i thought that was interesting because i did look through their list and i was looking for some specific people that weren't on that list or some specific companies and i was actually a little bit thrown off by this so platinum performance is one of their members but kentucky performance stride forefront and perica are not really i consider all of those that i just named to be sort of the higher tier of supplements kentucky performance stride forefront perica are all fairly high quality in my own opinion i could be totally wrong and be totally misled however smart pack which i think smart pack kind of plays both ends of the spectrum yeah bear farnum finish line and animed all our members specifically Animed and maybe Bear and Farnham a little bit. Bottom line, in my opinion. I was shocked that Animed was on that list. I don't know much about Animed. I just seen their products. I know their pricing compared to others. They're a feed store brand in my mind. So I was a little thrown by that. Like, why are the low tier supplements part of this, but the higher tier are not? I also think it was really interesting when I was looking. Um, when we say SmartPak is part of this, mem- like they are members so that are able to use the NASC seal and on their products and say that they follow their regulations and guidelines, they are specifically referring to SmartPak's products. SmartPak on their website sells a bunch of different brands. Like Hossaquine is sold on SmartPak and they are not a part of this. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, SmartPak's like their own specific line. And it's weird because I've bought tons of smart pack products i've never seen this logo anywhere but maybe i just haven't paid attention yeah i don't know and i think it's weird because the the names that you mentioned that weren't on the list i think are pretty familiar with most of us like i know i'm i've heard kentucky performance referred to a lot i've seen so many of their articles shared and like mm-hmm. they'll share different stories and stuff and so i hear their name coming up all the time so it's really interesting that they have chosen not to be a member but you would think that like so does Kentucky performance or their regulations not as good? Like, do they just have lower manufacturing? Like, what is it specifically? Or Because I would imagine in my mind when I'm looking at these, the companies that aren't on there are all like products I fed this year to my horse um, and are all like ones I specifically chose because I believe they have such a good reputation in the community. Are they worse? Are they better? If they're better, why wouldn't they just do this? Like, what is it? Do they not want to go to the meetings? I I, I wouldn't want to go to the meetings either. But like for a company to be a part of the NASC like member list to be able to use their seal of approval on their products, the companies must uh, successfully pass an independent facility audit every two years. Oh, so it is every two years or is it just one after two years? No, it's they have to successfully pass independent facility audit every two years. Okay, that's good. That's good. Because I was actually worried about that for a minute when I saw that they had like a you have to pass an audit to join because I know a lot of industries operate on that model where you have one inspection and then you get the sticker and you're good to go because as soon as they get that sticker, people change, practices change, things slide. And I wouldn't, if it's a one-time inspection, I wouldn't like put any weight in it. It's like the tenured professor thing, you know? Once a professor has tenure, then everything goes out the window. And you're like, well, now they're crap. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> I took this, though, directly off their website. They said they have okay. successfully passed independent facility audit every two years. Yeah. They also have to demonstrate ongoing compliance with having quality control manual in place that provides a standard written operating procedure for production and process control which is just a standardized process to ensure that they're having the same quality of like supplement produced each time around. 
Um, they have to comply with stringent labeling guidelines, which I'll get into. Um, they have to provide any specific warnings due to an ingredient on their label that could cause a reaction or issue in a horse. They have to submit random testing by an independent lab to ensure ingredients meet the label claim. Because a lot of these ingredients out here when they were tested found out that, hey, you're claiming you got this and it's nowhere in your supplement. This is not like you're not selling what you're claiming you're selling. Um, and then they also have to have real-time product monitoring and mandatory adverse event reporting, which I don't know what that is, but sounds official. Like if something goes wrong, what did you, you know, the wrong ingredient got dumped, oh, there was okay. a spill. Like it's honestly not that much of a requirement to join it. Like I would hope that any company out there is willing to do that with their supplements that they're going to sell that we're feeding to our horses. But the fact that so many aren't a part of that is so sketchy. Yeah. And I, again, I don't understand why, because again, maybe my understanding of Kentucky performance and stride and forefront is wrong. Like, I don't know, maybe I have, is something like maybe my perception is wrong of those companies that those aren't some of the best companies. I know Platinum Performance is also top tier, in my opinion, and they are part of it. So I don't, and I was wondering when I saw Platinum Performance was part of this, I was like, is this why every vet recommends Platinum Performance? So like, <laughs> every vet is like, get Platinum Performance. It's the best one. Right, because Farnham is not a brand I would typically think about. Like, I would go to them for SWAT, like fly repellent and stuff, but... As yeah, far as feeding my yeah. horse something, I don't think they're up the top of my list. It's the same with Animad. I wouldn't choose Animad either. Sorry, Farnham and Animad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no hard feelings. You're just like, again, you know, we have this perception that if I'm going to, in my mind, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to buy the most expensive one on the market. Why would I feed my horse filler if I'm going to spend the money? I want to make sure it's a quality product. But when I was looking through um, like what these companies can claim and what they can't say on their labeling and their marketing and their products. Um, so they essentially, based off of, I read this equine wellness magazine online article that kind of broke it all down and talked about what the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Center for Veterinary Medicine, which regulates animal supplements. Yeah, that's the CVM that I was mentioning. What supplements can't claim they cannot say that it prevents, treats, cures, or mitigates a disease. So they can't say it relieves dry skin, itching, and allergies. You cannot say that. You also cannot say it prevents Cushing's. If they want to make these kind of claims, it ha- it'll have to be a drug. And even then, I don't know if they can make those kind of claims. They'd have to prove it. You can't make those claims without proving it if you're a drug. They also, they cannot use any disease name or reference to a disease name. So they cannot say it protects against laminitis. There cannot be any reference to a chronic condition. So it can't say combats chronic inflammation or osteoarthritis. A supplement cannot say that. Any stated or implied comparison to or replacement for pharmaceuticals. So like they can't say it reduces the need for prescription pain medication. They can't use the disease names disguised as product names. So like inflam relief or something of a similar nature. They can't like disguise a disease name in the name of their product. But it's frustrating because I know of products that I've seen out there that have claimed these. I know supplements that advertise themselves on the market that are supplements and they make these kinds of claims. And that's why I wanted to start with that little blog post from (laughs) the, the UK doctor because those are the rules, yet nobody's following them. And if nobody's following labeling rules, what other rules aren't they following? Like not only are they not following the labeling laws, there's no one enforcing it. Yeah. No one is like cracking down on them until probably uh, like a lawsuit comes about against them. But until then, they aren't doing anything. And that, yeah, that was the exact thing. The FDA will not act unless you prove damages. And then they'll investigate the product. Which, what kind of BS is that? You guys, Summit Joint? That is terrifying to me. That you can inject a supplement? No. (laughs) Like, that is terrifying. And yet the FDA allows it. And I've seen so many people talk about Summit Joint and use Summit Joint. It's crazy. And like, all this advertising, the things that they cannot say, it's not just listed on the product itself this applies to internet advertising so social media posts blogs e-newsletters youtube channels as well as like traditional advertising on the radio tv print ads no matter where they're advertising it they cannot make these statements or claims so it goes beyond just like the labeling on that little supplement container they cannot say it in instagram ads and stuff and like i think i've seen smart pack make some like at least in their past 
they've made some erroneous claims in like their Instagram ads and stuff that go beyond what's listed on there. Oh, I'm for sure. <laughs> they all are guilty. Smart Pack is not alone on that one. They are all guilty of this. I mean, I just purchased a 30-day gut health reset thingamabobber. That, like, that, that's not allowed. But that was the whole spiel. The whole spiel is, is, you know, reset your gut health, help with gut health. That's not, that's not allowed. I wonder if it's like, if they have to get every single product tested to be able to f- check, to fall into the ability to put that label on it, or if it's like just every two years as a general application to that company. Yeah, if it's like an overall, like for example, do you just say, here's my ingredients list. It doesn't matter, like this is all the products we use. These are all good. And these, all these ingredients have the stamp of approval, but who knows what combinations of these ingredients we're using? Like, is that what, you don't know what level they're looking at it at. I mean, they are looking at the labels, but I wonder if they're looking at the label of every single supplement Smart Pack is selling and like doing random sample of every single supplement or if they're taking like randomly selecting 10 different supplements that they're selling, checking the labeling on them and doing the random sampling and ensuring that what they're saying is in the supplement is actually in the supplement. I would imagine it's fairly broad spectrum, but you also have to remember the National Animal, that council, is made up of the manufacturers themselves. They're not going to regulate themselves out of business. They're not going to voluntarily regulate themselves out of business. Yeah, and when I started looking at, you know, the different language out there of companies and brands that, you know, that they're not making the illegal claims that others are, but there's still, you know, kind of keywords. And I was reading this one um, blog post that it was on drramey.com and that he addresses like weasel words that they use to like, get like underneath your skin and to convince you that you need these products. And like first thing off the bat, they use such non-committal language with everything. It always just frustrates me, you know, they use just blanket terms. So, like one of the phrases they'll use is leading scientists agree. But they'll never go into detail and explain who these scientists are or like what they're agreeing with. It's the same like nine out of 10 doctor or dentists agree with Colgate. Who are these dentists? Why hasn't the 10th one signed on yet? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's the one I want to talk to. But yeah, so with the leading science one a lot of times can be like they agree that this ingredient could do something. But they're not agreeing that this combination of ingredients is doing what it claims. Right. And actually, I got frustrated with this when I went and looked at SmartPak's website. They have their little blue block where you go down, you can look at like reviews, what's in these different supplements. And they have a little tab that says research. And if you go and click on the little research tab, you would expect, I don't know, studies supporting it. No. What they do is they break down the individual ingredients, some of the individual ingredients. They don't address all of them because not all of them have research behind them, back them up, but they address the individual ingredients and what research is behind those, which makes sense. And I understand that. I'd be more interested if they like talk about the application of these ingredients combined with one another, as well as like the treatment process that these supplements go through does like how they create these and put them into pellet form actually deteriorate the effectiveness of that ingredient. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, so to add to this, um, Dr. Latcher, who does the Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth podcast, she was on the Jack Blues podcast the other day um, talking about supplements. So go check that out if you're interested in It's just like a really brief overview of supplements, but she's talked about them a couple of times. She does bring up that you have to, with those studies, a lot of times what they're actually using is mice and they're giving them really high doses of that ingredient. That is not going to be the dosage you give your horse. Yeah. One of the studies she was talking about, it was like 20% of the, horse, the mouse's diet was this ingredient. We're not feeding 20% of that. Yeah, it's just, it's frustrating that they, they present it in such a way that skews your perception and makes you think, oh, they do have this to back them up and like back up the claims they're making. Like another one of their favorite words to use is support. Because saying support is totally fine with an advertisement. And so everyone complains that their supplements support one vague thing to another. It's presented as though like without this support, your horse wouldn't be able to function. They'll say like it supports your horse's joints. It'll support their ligaments. It'll support normal hormone levels. How many times have you seen that? It'll support digestive health. It'll constantly say these different like what it supports, but never actually backs up how much it supports it and like what ways it's supporting it. It just says like this general, it supports. And I know I have given plenty of presentations in like high school and college and I would use these vague terms too when I had no idea what was going on. Them using these does not give me, makes me a little nervous. They also like a frequent one they say is, uh, and they love to advertise this one, is better improvement of gates. And we interpret this as like improved performance, higher scores, and easier horse to ride, that they're more balanced because they have a better improvement of their gates. And I know there's one study out right now that 
I think is waiting to be published. I was done in 2020 that looked at like Smart Pack Ultra Joint supplement and says that there is significant increase in the flexion in the horse's hocks compared to the control group that didn't get the supplement. But they only fed the supplement for 28 days. And like we're measuring the horses on like day zero of taking the supplement, day 14 of taking the supplement and day 28. I, I want to read the study when it comes out because that seems weird to me, right? I feel like to see the actual effects of a supplement, you have to be feeding it at least 30 days, probably more like 60 to see like long-term actual effects and if those improvements seem to hold. Yeah. And so when it comes back to joint supplements, we, so we are, this is part one, guys, we are going to do a category, like we're going to go through the different categories and look at the research for each of the different supplement categories. I think the next one being joint supplements, since that is the most popular one. If you're seeing benefits after 14 days, it's not because the cartilage has begun to regrow or anything like that. It is because it's pain management. Exactly. Most joint supplements are pain management. And so, yes, of course your horse is going to look happier. Of course they're going to have a better stride. That the product promises is going to happen because your horse is now on painkillers. Such a frustrating thing. Like, I guess to finish it off, the other language that these companies love to use is they'll use action words like acts, works, effective, efficient, but they don't actually have any quantitative value or evidence to fall back on and validate their claims. They'll also like say it promotes stuff, like it'll help promote normal hoof growth. But once again, they have no comparison of saying how it actually promotes it. Uh, They'll take their like most impressive and greatest change that one horse saw and apply this as a statement to all horses through terms like up to this much improvement or like as many as this many horses saw this improvement so yours will too. Always followed up with some anecdotal responses from satisfied customers which like yes those have their own place in time but in regard to supplements that we're feeding to our horses for their health I think to accept a customer testimonial it should at least come with support of changes that's like that the satisfied customer saw. So if they're looking at different digestive health improvements, then they should be taking a measurement of the hindgut, like bacteria in the hindgut health before they use a supplement and then after it. And then if they saw positive results, and this is why they're giving a great testimonial and positive affirmation of this supplement, then you can take their testimonial. But most of them aren't. They're just saying, oh, I saw my horse stick their ears more forward. Well, and part of the problem with the customer and the person writing the review is that we are, the placebo effect does affect people. It doesn't affect our horses, no, but it affects us and the way we watch and interpret our horses and the way we expect them to behave. If you just spent $300 a month on supplements, girl, you're going to hope to see a better, happier, like more sound athlete out there. And you're going to want, fingers crossed, you are doing this and buying this product because you want the best for your horse. You're not buying this because you want your horse to be worse. So the placebo effect like is set up to be really strong and the person who gets to watch and make a determination and write the review. The whole reason you're using these is to help improve your horse's health and you're doing it to make your horse more comfortable because you're trying to like do best by them. So of course, after spending the money on it, not only are you going to hope that you didn't waste your money on it, but you also like if you have the perceived idea, if even if your horse does have an issue, You want to see an improvement. You want to see your horse healthier and happier. I think the supplement industry really kind of preys on a few different areas when it comes to us as horse owners. The first is that we are well-educated, yet we do not have the time to understand how all of these products work. For example, arthritis is the end of a horse's life well-lived. Arthritis comes from your horse being lame for several months and putting more weight on the left leg than the right leg. Arthritis is the sign a horse lived a full life and those are all the knocks and scrapes and bruises your horse occurred. You're not going to prevent arthritis by giving them a supplement. You're going to prevent arthritis by making sure they're balanced and that they're, you know, they've got good feet and they've got good nutrition. That's going to prevent arthritis much better than any supplement. Yet most people don't have the time or the desire or whatever it is to really understand how these diseases work. And we rely on professionals to give us that information. And professionals are not obligated to give us the correct information. We rely really heavily on our vets and our instructors and our friends at the barn. And they are under no obligation to tell us the truth. And the same thing with nutrition. A well-balanced diet. Um, I found this study from 2021. It's not even published full out yet, their conclusion to this 2021 study that is available online, just not in print yet, is that only a few nutraceuticals have shown potential to improve health above and beyond the provision of a well-balanced diet. A well-balanced diet is the basis of horse health. And 
Most people just don't understand how to even go about doing that. And the last thing that supplement companies have really capitalized on is our perception of our horses has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. These used to be tools or livestock or, you know, part of our day-to-day life if we lived on a farm and we needed to move cows and check fences. Horses at one point were, you know, a tool or equipment or just something for pleasure. Now we see them as athletes. Now we want them to be as healthy as possible, to jump higher, to jump further. We want them to live their longest lives and be super competitive. And so supplements have capitalized on that and they said hey this works for people why don't you try this for for horses and it doesn't work for people um i feel like that's a little bit more accepted that it doesn't actually work for people but you can go ahead and think it does and try it but we want to we want to treat our animals like athletes and we're trying to do what all the athletes do and that's great you just got to start with a great foundation and if you don't have great nutrition if you don't have a great fitness program if you're not don't have a great farrier or understanding biomechanics supplements won't do anything could not have said it better myself uh do you have anything that you want to finish up with or is that kind of like your final thoughts that is my final thoughts <laughs> yeah we'll definitely be doing another episode in the future that actually goes into kind of like the appropriate balance diet of a horse and stuff because me myself and you're like most people don't know the proper amount of hay and water a horse needs in a day i was like crap do i know that and i think the answer is no good episode to do and i think we'll be looking into doing that one in the future to make sure that we know what we're talking about you know absolutely yeah definitely we're going to cover nutrition and we're going to continue on to cover each like sort of category of supplements from gut health to joints to electrolytes and just kind of dig into what the science is for that particular category and do they work do they not work um and what you should be considering if you do really believe you need to add a supplement to your horses diet yeah but thank you guys so much for sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode this was a long one but it was worth it i think we had a lot of really good information in it if you guys have any questions comments concerns topics you want us to discuss next you can reach out to us on instagram at in the barn.pod or you can reach out to us at the gmail which is in the barn pod yeah, in the barn pod at gmail.com and then we do have a facebook i made the facebook i just haven't like put anything on it yet so <laughs> I, i'm i'm sorry guys i have really slow internet so it takes me a while but we do have an in the barn podcast facebook page now. perfect and on that note guys make sure to stay safe stay classy and stay in the saddle see you next time